I'm Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, episode 41, Wrestling with God. I just got back from a week at the Freed Hardeman Lectureship. Actually, it wasn't a week. It was just a couple of days. I could only spend a little time there, and I almost didn't go because I had so little time this year, but I've got kind of a streak going on. I don't believe I've missed a single lectureship at Freed Hardeman since 1993, which was my freshman year at school there, and I can't break a streak like that. So a friend of mine and I drove up there like on a Tuesday morning, stayed for a little while, uh, spent the night Tuesday night, came back midday Wednesday so I could be back at home church, at, at my home church for Bible study. I'm glad I went. I, I heard some amazing lectures. I wish I could go through them one by one and tell you about the ones that I heard. I'm not going to take the time to do that today, but I I did want to say that they covered the book of Exodus this year, which has a lot of very difficult passages, and they didn't shy away from any of them. They covered some really, really heavy themes and didn't hedge, didn't try to, you know, just avoid the the tough themes. They tackled them head on without fear and with total faith and and really gave a great explanation about the book of Exodus and, and all of the things going on there. If you ever have time to go, it's the first full week of February every year at Freed Hardeman University, Henderson, Tennessee. Go, even if you can only go for a day or so, just a few hours in a day. You'll find a great lecture to go to. There, there are so many to choose from, and you'll grow from it and meet a lot of great people there as well. It's a good time for me to go back and see classmates and, and meet friends that that I only see once a year there and so I was really glad to see uh, a bunch of a bunch of those guys glad that I went look forward to going again next year now let's let's get back into our series on Jacob the favored cheat this week's episode is called wrestling with God and I bet you can guess what it's about it's about that night when Jacob wrestles with this mysterious character that he later comes to realize is God, and it sits about halfway through his story, sequentially and thematically. I mean, it it really is a pivotal moment in Jacob's life. It explains everything, everything that went before this and everything that goes after this spins on this night where he's wrestling with the angel. And the whole thing, there are a lot of questions I won't be able to answer, but the whole thing seems to to be about wrestling with God. And I know that is a subject that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. People frown on the idea of questioning God. They forget, though, that even Jesus questioned God. Go to Calvary, listen to him on the cross, and he's asking a question. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? But it's not just the -the run-of-the-mill skepticism that you hear from people who have given up on God. He's not doing that. It's a questioning faith. He's quoting Scripture, actually, when he asks the question. He's quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. And so you have this cosmic wrestling match between a father who sacrificed something precious for the world and his son who was abandoned to a Roman cross. It's not capitulation towards doubt. It's an act of faith. 
juxtapose that with the comfortable, neat little package offered by Christian religion in America today. Church buildings with every amenity, services offering everything under the sun, worship services tailored to suit our entertainment preferences, preachers who stay away from sermons on difficult subjects and on sin, opting for more palatable themes, and all of it's over in an hour. Nobody's struggling, and the first time anybody's faith is challenged, they're surprised by it, and many of them quit. True faith, true faith, true faith asks questions. True faith involves a struggle. Another example, we already mentioned Christ. Another example is Habakkuk the prophet. Habakkuk lived in a really difficult time in Israel. The clock was ticking and time was winding down. God had been warning Israel through one prophet after another that if they didn't repent and stop worshiping idols, he was going to give them over to their enemies. And now the Babylonian Empire is increasing in power. It's looming over the horizon, and Habakkuk knows that the end is near. And he's really struggling with this, because even though Israel is wicked, they know the true God and, and count him among the idols that they worship. The Babylonians don't even know God. They're even worse. And he asked this question in Habakkuk chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's asking some questions and these aren't softball questions. He's being very bold here in what he's asking God. But the book of Habakkuk is, is kind of like wrestling in prayer and it leads somewhere. It actually leads to stronger faith because when you get to the end, he's saying, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He winds up in a better place through asking questions. And so you see in Habakkuk's example, an example of the right kind of questions. You see a faith that struggles. So faith and struggle, this is my point, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, faith often begins asking questions. You have to really believe and trust in God to step in the ring with him. So this lesson is about a man who steps into the ring with God, and his struggle stands for this tension that really ought to characterize all of our lives, the tension of real saving faith. Now, Jacob has left Laban's house, his father-in-law, and he started home. That means he has to pass through Edom, the land now ruled by his brother Esau. He hasn't reconciled his differences with Esau, and a lot of time has now passed, 20 years. Jacob's 
97 years old. And yet when he came face to face with the past and the person of his brother Esau, he was, according to Genesis 32 verse 7, greatly afraid and distressed. And true to form, Jacob begins to scheme. He sent a message to Esau calling him Lord and referring to himself as your servant. And he organized his people and livestock into two groups, thinking that if Esau attacked one of them, then the other would perhaps escape. And he did pour his heart out to God in prayer. And we have that prayer in Genesis 32, beginning in verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." You first read that, it looks like an appropriate, heartfelt prayer. But take another look at it. It begins this way in verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. You may recognize those words from a miraculous communication Jacob received from God in Genesis 31. But Jacob slightly altered God's original words. In the divine revelation recorded in Genesis 31, God actually said, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. But when Jacob recalled those words, he changed the last part from, I will be with you, to, I may do you good. Now, so what? What's, what's wrong with that? Jacob is substituting a promise of material bounty for God's general assurance that he would be with him. Jacob is still naming his terms. You see, God's promises are not good enough for him. They had to be amended by the great negotiator. Remember the vision of Jacob's ladder. After God promised to protect Jacob, make him a great nation, Jacob makes this vow saying that he would be with God or the, the Lord would be his God if God would give him safe passage on his journey and provide him with bread to eat and clothing to wear. He's still negotiating the same way, still looking for material goods over God's abiding presence. He has a lot to learn. He continues scheming. He organizes this huge peace offering to appease Esau, and spaces it out in droves or herds, instructing the servants leading each drove to say the same thing whenever Esau asked about it. Here's what they would say. This is a present from your servant Jacob, and moreover, he is behind us. So over and over again, this is a present from your servant Jacob, and moreover, he is behind us. Esau sees the next gift. This is a present from your servant Jacob. He is behind us, etc. And finally... Jacob helps his family across the Jabbok River by night, fearing Esau may wage 
some kind of attack during the day. So he's got the stage set, and the picture is of a man in desperation who is haunted by a past he feels he cannot escape. I think this is one of the intersection points of our lives with Jacob's, because every one of us is haunted by a past, whether we acknowledge it or not. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the deadliness of sin cannot be overstated. Sin ought to produce the same fear and distress in us that we see in Jacob when he encounters his long-lost brother Esau. And the passage of time doesn't matter. It's been 20 years for Jacob, and it may have been longer for us since we left the Lord, but time doesn't heal all wounds. Jacob's past is producing an anxiety in him just as fresh, maybe even more terrorizing than the emotions that drove him hundreds of miles away from his father's house so many years before. Sin doesn't go away with time. You may successfully bury it for a while, but eventually something is going to trigger the guilt that you've been trying to ignore, and the pain is just as acute as it was in the beginning, maybe more so. But there's a way to escape. Our plans, though, are insufficient substitutes for God's purpose. Let's keep reading and see what happens to Jacob. He's alone on the north banks of the Jabbok the night before he was to face his old demons in the, in the person of his brother Esau. And Jacob has this experience that changed his life forever. He wrestles with God. Verse 24 says, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penuel, or Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Strange encounter. Moses writes this in his usual stripped-down fashion, and we don't know how the battle began here, this wrestling match. He just begins all of a sudden saying that he wrestled with a man. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Maybe Jacob thought it was related to his conflict with Esau. We don't know. At first, Jacob and the angel fought on equal terms. The angel must have been restraining the use of his supernatural powers and fighting as a mere man. 
Then the angel employed his supernatural strength, touching Jacob's hip and setting it out of joint. Now it's really important to see what's going on here because the English translation says that he strikes Jacob's hip. That's too strong a word. The verb in the Hebrew here means to touch, even to barely touch. So something miraculous happens because he just barely touches Jacob's hip and it goes out of socket. And still, Jacob, he doesn't let go. So it's getting towards daybreak and the angel pleads with Jacob to let him go. It'd be dangerous for Jacob to see this strange being in the daylight for some reason. But Jacob refuses to let the opponent go without a blessing. So Jacob must by now be realizing that he's facing someone other than just a mere human being, an unusual opponent who could grant him special favors. He also knows he's outmatched, and a transformation begins to take place in Jacob's heart. He's no longer telling God what to do. He's asking. He's even begging here. Jacob's opponent asks him to tell him his name. Now, you'll remember what Jacob's name means. It means supplanter or cheater. So in telling him his name, Jacob is owning up to his scheming, sinful nature. He was a cheat. And what happens next changes Jacob's life forever. In response to Jacob's request for a blessing, the man, the angel, God, whoever this is, gives him something more. He gives him a new name, Israel, saying, For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. What this means is he gave him a new identity. Whenever someone got a new name in the Old Testament, they were getting a new identity. They they're seeing themselves in a new way. They were a new person. He was being remade. And then Jacob asks for his opponent's name, and his suspicions are confirmed by the cryptic answer. I love this. He says, Why is it that you ask my name? He had been wrestling with someone who transcended identity. The great I Am, the God of his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. Jacob calls this place Penuel, meaning face of God, because he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And when he limped away from that place to meet his family, he was no longer the cheat that he had been. He had been favored with a new identity. He was Israel, a man who had wrestled God and prevailed through God's mercy. The gospel promises more than an escape from your past. It promises that, but it also promises a new identity, a clean slate, the power to bury the sinful person of the past and become a new creation in Christ. I think a lot of us make the mistake of thinking Christianity is about trying to better yourself. But Christ calls for something more radical than that. He doesn't want to polish you up and make you more presentable. He wants to transform you into something different than you have ever been before. He wants to give you a new identity. He wants to rename you. In Jack London's short story, The Heathen, the protagonist, Charlie, meets a pagan islander named Otu from Bora Bora, 
and forges a friendship with him when they emerge as the sole survivors of a shipwreck in the South Seas. Charlie and Otu perform the island ceremony of exchanging names, and afterwards Charlie says, We have exchanged names. To you, I am Otu, and to me, you are Charlie. And between you and me, forever and ever, you shall be Charlie, and I shall be Otu. It is the way of the custom. And when we die, if it does happen that we live again somewhere beyond the stars and the sky, still shall you be Charlie to me, and I Otu to you. So, you see, the friends symbolized the intimacy of their bond by exchanging their identities. Now, our relationship with God resembles the ceremony of exchanging names with one exception. In our case, we take God's name, but our name is not exchanged, it's lost. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 16, 24, when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The first step to following Christ is losing yourself in him. Not giving him your identity in exchange for his, but losing your identity and taking his, losing yourself in him. So, there is a way to escape your past, but it will not be found until you are ready to scrap the old you and allow God to transform you into one in whom Christ dwells. I talked about the Fried Hardeman Lectures at the top of this episode. One year I was there and Dr. Jim Gardner was giving a definition of a Christian. And I, I liked it so much I wrote it down. He said, a Christian is a person who has been born again crucified with Christ, who longs to be transformed so that in the end there is nothing left but Christ. At the end of this wrestling match, there was very little left to the old Jacob. Someone new emerged at dawn and rejoined his family. With all of that, Esau is in danger of being forgotten. But the day is broken, and he approaches Jacob. And surprisingly, Esau doesn't wage war. He embraces his brother. Chapter 33 begins, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, with four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. Somehow, the strange events that occurred the night before are connected in Jacob's mind to his reconciliation with his brother. If you keep reading after this reunion, verse 10 says that Esau tries to refuse Jacob's gifts, 
But Jacob keeps insisting on his taking him. And listen to what he says. It's really strange. He says, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. What does he mean by that? He knows Esau isn't the man that he wrestled all night long, doesn't he? He's not saying that Esau is the same person, but he does say that seeing Esau's face is like seeing the face of God the night before. He's somehow connecting the two events together. He doesn't believe that it was coincidental that his wrestling match happened the eve of his meeting with Esau and the successful reunion between the two of them. Jacob's words are almost identical to what he said the night before to the angel. And this connection has to mean that without the one, he would not have had the other. We see here another analogy to our experience as Christians. Jacob's reconciliation with his brother is a picture of the gospel, a picture Paul describes really well in Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Here are the connections. The Christian comes to God, Paul says, by faith. Not some weak acknowledgement of God's existence or Sunday-only Christianity, but an exercise involving struggle and trust and submission that leads to a relationship with God. And Paul says we are justified by faith. In other words, we gain a new name, a new identity, just like Jacob did. We crucify that old person of sin so that God can make a new creation in us by the power of His Son, Jesus Christ. And what is the result of being justified by faith? He says we have peace with God and access by faith into this grace in which we stand. With Jacob, we can say, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. We have that kind of access. We're able to enter the very presence of the Father and claim all the rights that belong to His children. We're able to petition Him, dwell with Him, and receive blessings from Him. This story isn't just about the repaired relationship between Jacob and God, he is also reconciled to his estranged brother Esau. And this also speaks to the blessings that we have in Christ. You see, reconciliation with God is the basis for all other reconciliation. Think about it. Why do marriages and friendships and relationships end? Why do churches split and why do nations go to war? Is it not because either side feels the need to defend itself, to justify itself, because we feel the scars of a broken relationship deep down? The only remedy is peace with God. No one can really forgive, truly forgive, way down deep where it hurts until he makes peace with God. And then once that is done, You no longer need to defend yourself or get your way because those desires are satisfied in the ultimate relationship that you have with God. 
Another example of this is in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is trying to explain how Christ brings the Jews and Gentiles together in the church. And in verse 16, he says that he reconciles both to God, making the two one new man in Christ. He's very careful in his word choice there. He doesn't say say he reconciles them together, but he reconciles both of them to God, and that reconciliation to God, the ultimate reconciliation, makes one new man out of the two, thus making peace. I think that's a really important distinction. Jacob had been reconciled to God and presumably Esau had too. And that, so they no longer needed to defend themselves or justify themselves or cast blame and point fingers. All of that work had been done for them by God. And they could just embrace one another and forget it. And that's how all wars end That's how all strife ceases. That is the only hope for forgiveness, is reconciliation to God. Another great passage on this is 1 John 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. So the blood of Jesus cleanses sin, making reconciliation with God possible, And the byproduct of that is fellowship with one another. That's how Jacob and Esau were brought together. And that's how Jacob's life is transformed and how the rest of the story looks very different from the first of the story. From this point forward, we're no longer looking at the cheat. We're looking at the favored one. The one that God, for some reason, decided to encounter one dark night, and touch his hip socket, the one Jacob clung to so tightly and insisted on a blessing, the one whom God named Israel. We'll keep looking at him next time on Wide Margins.